Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 163. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. Hi there. Welcome back. And if you're new, great to have you with us. Welcome to the Map Bites family. Map Bites is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit, and so much more. We also review apps and as IT professionals, we share our love for both hardware and software. We're a quirky show. And just to prove that, let me share one of our stories from the Newbie's Guide to MacBytes. And you'll find that at macbytes.co.uk. Today's pick is something we've just had, and that is Do Not Copy and Paste Week. It's the week, or sometimes longer, that the UK and the rest of the world are out of sync in terms of daylight saving time. It has caused havoc for us, with over 40 events between us, to ensure that are scheduled at the correct time. It would have been easier back in the day if BusyCal could have coped with us copying and pasting the events, and done the logical thing with them and offset them by an hour. But back then it couldn't, and it left us with only trial and error or Apple Calendar. Check out the full horror in the Newbie's Guide to MacBytes. We've changed from BST, which is British Summer Time, to GMT, Greenwich Mean Time, or Zulu Time, if you're in the military. Sadly, the US and other places didn't change their clocks until the weekend. So the fun and game started for me the very same day. I usually have an online session at 9pm UK time. So I was busy watching the Strictly Results show and I almost forgot that my event would be 8pm. And before you even think it, I know, Strictly, what can I say? It's my guilty pleasure. Anyway, Mike was kind enough to remind me then I could find the mail with the link in it. But it turns out they weren't able to send the mail. I got in another way, but instead of the usual 60 plus people, there were 11 of us. The week carried on in the same vein, to be honest. But by some miracle, we're here again and ready to share the joys of the ritual humiliation of One Take Thomas. And starting with this week in tractor news. No, don't worry. For the first time in what feels like, ooh, months, I haven't been assaulted by any tech-related tractor news. Clearly, a gross oversight somewhere in the tractor tech world. Expect normal service to return next time. For a long time, I've had issues with iCloud. Haven't we all? Exactly. So much so that talking about them could actually be a show on its own. But I'll summarise. Sync issues. I've talked about it before, more than once, no doubt. As long-time listeners will know, I have two 27-inch iMacs. One is in the studio, which doubles up as my work-from-home office during the day, and that was purchased in 2017. The other is in our shared office. That one was bought in 2020. The problem came to light in August last year when I started using Ulysses to write blog posts. Ulysses has one-click publishing to WordPress, which is why I use it. I'd written a blog post on the Mac in the office. The following day, I realised it needed amending and I happened to be in the studio. So, I fired up Ulysses to find the post wasn't there. After some testing and troubleshooting, I surmised that the items created in Ulysses on the Office Mac weren't syncing anywhere. They weren't on the other iMac, nor were they available in Ulysses on my iPhone and iPad. I got in touch with Ulysses support, who asked me for some log files. 
They also asked me to stick a random file into iCloud and see if it synced, which surprisingly it did. After a couple of days, they came back and said, after thoroughly analysing your logs, we have reason to believe that your iCloud setup might be corrupted in general, since several programs utilising iCloud Drive have trouble synchronising. The mail ended with, should you need further help in this, please contact Apple support. I didn't contact Apple support. As one of my colleagues who had a technical issue with her Windows laptop said recently, I'm too busy to be bothered letting some first-line support agent fart around with my laptop for 30 minutes. I've continued to use Ulysses but changed the settings to use Dropbox to sync content across devices rather than iCloud. So at that point, the sync issue was with Ulysses on one Mac. File syncing was fine. Well, it was back in August 2021. But at some point, and I don't know when, it broke. To summarise, files stored on the desktop in the Studio iMac sync to the desktop in the office. Those same files also sync to my iPhone and iPad. However, any files that I put on the desktop of the iMac in the office don't sync at all. And I'm talking about any files here. Screenshots, Excel files, text files, etc, etc. No amount of rebooting and logging out of iCloud would fix the issue. So you're telling me not even incanting the tech gods with promises of suitable sacrifices worked then? No, not even that. And then there's Obsidian, which I've started using for making notes. Obsidian uses iCloud for syncing across devices. Now, you set Obsidian up for me on the Office iMac a couple of months ago. I added some notes and the next day I was in the studio. It was the beginning of September. I remember it well. It was when I attended that three-day conference, the week of the Apple event. I wanted to make some notes when I was on the conference, so I opened up Obsidian and couldn't find my stuff. I ended up making the notes in Rome and copying and pasting them over to Obsidian later. So at that point, you reconfigured Obsidian on both my iMacs to use Dropbox to sync. The only downside of that is it doesn't support syncing to mobile devices via Dropbox, only computers. You finally persuaded me to do the Monty thing. You tantalised me with the hope that it might fix my sync issue. For any new listeners, Monty is what we call Monterey at MacBytes headquarters. So on the Friday morning, I did a backup of the Office iMac and installed Monty. As I was working, delivering training in the studio, it was an unattended install. Between training sessions, I popped into the office to check on the progress of Monty. The iMac had frozen. There was no response on the keyboard or mouse, and the only solution was to turn it off and turn it on again. Once it had restarted, I checked about this Mac to find that it still had Biggles installed. That's Big Sur for any new MacBytes listeners. So I started the upgrade process again and left it. I came back 90 minutes later. It was waiting for me to click the upgrade button, which I'd already done. So, third time lucky, I clicked the button and took Lola out for a walk. I came back and proclaimed, holy hallelujah, Magic Mike has finally achieved the full Monty. The big question was, had updating to Monty fixed my iCloud woes? I decided to save that test for another day. I successfully updated to Monty, which was enough success to celebrate for one day. Fast forward to Friday night, it was time to relax, but you had other ideas. Has the update fixed your iCloud issues, you said? I'll check tomorrow, I said. No, do it now. 
you said. That's the way we rock and roll on a Friday night at MacBytes headquarters, testing broken Apple services. No, it's still broken, I said. You had a cunning plan. I was all ears. After all, I tried absolutely everything else. Maybe the problem is with your user account on the Mac, you said. You suggested that I create a new user account on the iMac in the office. That's the one with the syncing problem, just in case you've lost the thread of this story. And then we'll test the syncing. So I created a new user account, called it Mike2, logged out and logged in using the new account. In terms of appearance, it didn't look like my Mac. Cerise pink wallpaper, large icons on the dock, dock at the bottom, I have mine on the left-hand side, and the account icon was a bird of some description. That was doubtless the iCloud cuckoo land bird. No matter, it was only a temporary account for testing. We did every conceivable sync test. Add a file to the desktop on the Office iMac, did it sync to the other Mac and my mobile devices? Add a file to the desktop on the Studio iMac, did that sync to the other Mac and my mobile devices? Deleted the file from the desktop on my Office Mac, did it get removed from the other Mac and my mobile devices? I won't bore you with every test we did, but suffice it to say, it had no effect. Well, only on our mental well-being. So I logged out of the new account and logged back into my real one, despondent and disconsolate, but breathing a sigh of relief that my blue wallpaper was back and my dock was on the left-hand side. You were more confident than me and suggested one more round of testing in my original account. So we repeated the tests and... Everything was sinking. Next, we tested Obsidian. You had to reconfigure it so that it synced via iCloud rather than Dropbox. I typed some test text onto a page, gave it a few seconds, remotely logged into the Mac in the studio, and it had synced. And what of Ulysses? Well, all my existing content is in Dropbox, and if it ain't broke, which it ain't, I won't try and fix it. But... As you pointed out, my publishing accounts are now synchronising too, and unless it's via telepathy, I think it's safe to say iCloud is working there too. You'd get better odds on the telepathy, to be honest. Before I retired to bed for the night, I deleted the test user account that I'd created. But it appears that your suggestion of creating a second account kicked something into action behind the scenes. Microsoft had an event recently. Don't worry if you were hitherto blissfully unaware of this. It seems nobody but Microsoft has been paying attention to them lately, as we'll see. At said event, there were 10 points of interest. So here with the Microsoft Top 10. In at number 10, Microsoft 365. They announced that Office 365 was now Microsoft 365. If you have a feeling of deja vu, you're not alone. So do I. That would be because this was originally announced back in 2019. If they needed to announce this again, I suggest the original announcement didn't exactly hit home. I don't get it myself. When you have a range of very different applications, branding one of them with the company name seems idiotic. But that ship sailed. The boxed version of the voucher for a year's subscription is already branded Microsoft 365. I know that as I bought four of them a few months back. So that's Mike and I covered for the next two years. 
Pro tip, you can have up to five years of redemption codes on your account, which is insurance against any price increases. Well worth doing. If after three years your rebrand is still a problem, it might be time to give the marketing department more than just a hard stare. Just an idea. Number nine, the Microsoft 365 app. Well, a few years ago, Microsoft released a hybrid app. It was a one-stop shop for Word, Excel and PowerPoint, a single app that gave you access to all three core Office apps. They didn't sunset the original apps. This one was in addition to those. Why? I'm not sure even they know the answer to that, but it did have one huge benefit back then. Before multiple instances of the Office apps were a thing, the Office app could be run side by side with any other real Office app. This announcement was that there's a new version of the hybrid app coming in November. It's promised to be, and I quote, an evolution of the Office app that essentially gives you access to everything in one place, along with AI powered intelligence. Leaks show that the app looks exactly the same as the existing one. So, a second case of move along, nothing to see then. Number eight, Microsoft Designer. I know, it sounds suspiciously like Affinity Designer. To be honest, it has more in common with Canva and Adobe Express. So, an online way to create images for social media. Now, there have been those who have been getting rather giddy about this, despite never having seen the app. At least see it before you pass judgment, you muppets. If you're wrong and it's garbage, you'll look like a complete idiot. And if you're right and it's as awesome as your clairvoyance claims, one, that was luck. Two, I will forever imagine you as Mystic Meg. Can I just say, I'm one of those Muppets that you speak of. I signed up to the waiting list on day one. No, no, no. Signing up doesn't make you a Muppet. These folks were saying how fantastic the app is or is going to be. The point I was making was they haven't even seen it yet. The most interesting thing about it is that the new app includes Dali. Dali being an AI system that converts words into artwork. You're wondering, aren't you? For example, you ask for a fish riding a bicycle and technically that's what Dali creates for you. Think of it as a personal always on artist who draws on your command. Microsoft Create is a new name for all of the Office templates that have been around in various guises on Microsoft's site for years. My initial thought was, Hmm, it seems you really can put lipstick on a pig. However, a little more research and there are promises that this version of the templates will include some new additions. It's said to include templates for Word, Excel, PowerPoint and Forms, but there's also a link to ClipChamp for video editing and mention of Microsoft Designer. I know it's not out yet, but given the quality of the announcement so far, this is clearly the best they can do. Number six, OneDrive changes. Notice that word, changes. It doesn't scream improvements to me, but come on, let's keep the faith and plough on. It's a ragtag of upcoming changes together with some things that have already happened. 
It must have been like Groundhog Day as Microsoft was planning these announcements. The ability to favourite a file, that's called pinning in Office. There's an update to the OneDrive site, but we're not to call it that. The jumped up 12 year olds in marketing have their own language for us. And I quote, it's a reimagined experience. I don't know about you, but that's language I reserve for when stuff doesn't actually work. That and many more bad words. Very true. So remember, it's not an update. It's a reimagined experience. Something else, and this time it's especially for Mac users. The ability to back up Mac OS desktop and documents folders. Doubtless for redundancy when iCloud's having a moment. When iCloud is having a reimagined experience, you mean? Well, that would be one way of describing it. Next up for OneDrive is Nucleus Offline Mode for OneDrive Web with AutoSync when online. Catchy name. The idea is to make the files available offline within the web interface instead of via Explorer or Finder. Now, since macOS already has played havoc with the offline cloud-based files, I don't recommend holding your breath with this one. There's also enhanced views for shared with you, people and meetings. I wonder if they'll go down as well as the surprise photos view. Time will tell. There's also the addition of a sync health dashboard. I can only conclude that that monitors the gnashing of teeth of the user collective. So after all that, it looks like I'm staying with Dropbox as my primary cloud. Number five, Clipchamp. Now, this is more recycled news. Clipchamp is an in-browser video creation and editing experience. Yes, another thing that's called an experience. Call me old fashioned, but I'd rather have something that works rather than an experience. But I digress. This was founded in 2013. Microsoft bought it in September 2021. It's now available for download from the Microsoft Store. And the update released back in September added a few extra options for, I nearly said Office 365 users. Clearly, I meant Microsoft 365 users, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Now, it's not all good news, though, as the full version's $9.99 a month. There is a discount for an annual subscription of $99.99. So similar to Canva, but only for videos. The big announcement? Premium filters on the 365 plan. Number four, the Microsoft Loop app. Yet more old news, Microsoft Loop. It was announced at Ignite in 2021. It was coming soon. And at Ignite 2022, it's still coming soon. It is said to be built around many collaborative components within messages and documents that Loop will be getting its own app. Outlook on the web and Word on the web will have polls from Microsoft Forms. Word for web, you'll be able to insert a poll, a checklist or a task list. You'll be able to copy a Loop component into the whiteboard for Teams, web and desktop. There's a Q&A element, Outlook on the web preview at the moment and later in 2022 will be generally available. There's sensitivity labels in team chats. They will arrive by the end of the year. And there is something called data loss prevention. It's going to be in Teams chat by the end of the year. 
The most interesting for me was the sensitivity labels. My mind is boggling. Is it like a content warning for precious snowflakes? Number three. Teams Premium, a new and higher level of teams, for which read, they're adding a more expensive pricing tier. For which you'll receive, recap, AI summarisation of the meeting. Now that should be an absolute scream. Live translation, real-time captioning by a squad of trained monkeys. Actually, if it's the same system that's been in PowerPoint since 2019, that does work alarmingly well, albeit with a few hilarious moments. Privacy, data protection options in Teams calls, including watermarks and recording controls. What a waste of time. If you can see it, you can record it. Meeting guidelines, groups of approved settings for meeting options and permissions. It sounds absolutely thrilling, doesn't it? I'm sure tech used to be more exciting than this. Anyway, all of that thrilling news should be landing in February 2023 with previews from December 2022. Number two, Teams avatars. Brace yourselves. 3D avatars are rolling out in Teams. Seriously. Attending meetings will be like watching Nickelodeon. I'm all for avatars. I never do video on calls. But I don't think we need the equivalent of Pocahontas meets Snow White staring back at us either. Seriously, in the promo image, I swear the avatar in the lower left with the 10-gallon hat is J.R. Ewing. But, like it or not, it's on its way. Coming in at number one, we have Microsoft Places. This one's a classic. It proudly proclaims to answer one question. I'll pause while you consider what the most burning question in business is these days. I mean, to be honest, I reckon it's a fairly common question these days, but still. The question it seeks to provide the answer to is... Where are my staff? I know, really. You hired them. Did you hire them not actually thinking you could trust them to be? Oh, I don't know. Actually doing the work you pay them to do. Just an idea. Microsoft, of course, claimed to know better. Using surveillance intelligence, sorry, sorry, data from Teams and Microsoft cloud services. That sounds like surveillance information to me. Me too. Microsoft Places will show where people are and will be. They claim this is to help with arranging office space and face-to-face meetings. May I suggest in regard to those two issues that having a one-person, one-desk policy is an idea. Not this modern approach of musical hot desks, or as I call them, rabid germ-infested sweatboxes. I predict this thing will have a shorter life than Ladbrokes server did in the 90s. That beauty was a predictive stock control system that Sainsbury in the UK paid millions for. They paid that much for a system that never worked in the way it was intended that they almost went bankrupt. I attended the announcement of Ladbrokes server, which incidentally wasn't its correct non-diploma. I have no recollection what this thing was actually called. 
I was guffawing at the mere idea far too much to actually catch the name. But I do remember that as a director of my business, I'd taken the MacBytes mum along with me to said event. While all the wide-eyed, innocent younger generation were hanging on to Microsoft's every word, she sat there shaking her head. They should have taken more notice of her. She was the first computer programmer to work on Baby in Manchester, Baby being one of the earliest computers. And it was when she started work back in the early 50s. One heck of an achievement for a woman back then when making the tea was much more what was expected. Anyway, we were both proved right. So I think we'll christen this one the Where's Waldo server. Surely it should be cheaper to staple an air tag to each employee and be done. We had a system like that at work. I can't remember what it was called, but I think it was powered by Skype. So as you walked into a big open plan office, there was this big TV screen on the wall and you typed in somebody's name using the on-screen keyboard, and it showed you where they were sitting. Or rather, it showed you where their laptop was. They could have been anywhere. So I'd say it was the alpha version of AirTags. Although I guess it was better than person one calling person two and saying, where are you? And person two saying, see that plant pot? No, not that one, the one by the printer. Well, I'm just to the left of that. I'll stand up and wave. I still say if you had enough desks for the number of employees, there would be no need for these ridiculous shenanigans. But there you have it. All the news from the event. There was pretty much a repeat of all the previous events. Before I share this one, let me assure you, I did check the date. You know, making sure it wasn't April the 1st. Apparently not. This is something that deserves to be at CES, though. You know that celebration of tech that never makes it to market, but gives us all a huge giggle. In fact, it could well have been, because despite my only seeing it referred to in a new article last week, I'm assured this thing has been around since 2018. It's called Tushy. And if that's reminding you of an illuminated backside, you're very warm. It's a fit-it-yourself B-Day device. It's selling itself as an alternative to toilet paper, claiming to remove the need for it entirely and thus save the planet. There was no information on what the impact of using more water with each visit would have on the planet, nor on how the drying would occur after the deluge. Unless we're all invited to hang around and wait for nature to take its course. Still, a brave attempt at producing something for us all to have a good laugh at. Ah, shakes head sadly. It seems that my regular posting of videos on YouTube over the past eight months has got people interested in my process, at least according to the emails that I've received. So, in response to those emails, today I'm going to go behind the scenes and give you the lowdown on how I put together a video for YouTube from choosing a topic, through recording, editing, all the way to the final upload, you'll get all the details. Plus, I'll explain why a checklist is so important. And I'll wrap up by explaining why I post a screenshot of the Camtasia editor on LinkedIn. But first, some background to put it all into context. I've had a YouTube channel since February 2010. In fact, I have two channels. I created a second channel in September 2011, and that was because the first one was created using the wrong email address. Don't ask. Long story. 
The first channel, or old channel as I call it, has 73 videos and hasn't had any new content since April 2018. So you might be thinking, why don't I just close it down? Why don't I take the videos and re-upload them to the new channel? Well, I've got three reasons for that. One, many of the videos have comments on them, which would be lost. Two, many of the videos have external links to them, particularly from my blog. And three, the channel has over 4,000 subscribers, which isn't a huge number, but it still earns me a few dollars in revenue each month. Looking back at that channel, there's stuff that I'd totally forgotten about, like how to create a music mixtape on your iPhone, and several videos about a now-defunct service called Cloudon, which was a cloud-based version of Microsoft Office that you could run on an iPad. This was the only way to do it, as the official Microsoft apps didn't exist until a couple of years later. Many of the videos on that channel are actually taken directly from live online sessions that I delivered back in the day, when we were using Adobe Connect as our delivery platform. Although I created the second channel over 11 years ago and even put a few videos on it, it actually wasn't until February this year that I started taking it seriously. And by seriously, I mean things like having a consistent release schedule of videos, something that regular listeners of the MacBytes podcast will know has never been our strong point. And creating an enticing title and using keywords and a description that maximizes the chances of the video being found in a search on both Google and YouTube. And of course, having a good looking thumbnail. Thumbnail images are those small clickable images that you see when you're browsing YouTube. And just like people judge a book by its cover, although according to the popular saying, you shouldn't do that, many people judge a video by its thumbnail. Of course, that's not always the case. I've seen some great videos with poor thumbnails and vice versa. Anyway, we need to play by the rules, so I need a good looking thumbnail. The first step in my video creation process is to come up with a topic. Now, in an ideal world, I would have a list of topics that I can just pick from. But we live in a far from ideal world, so it's often a case of it's Friday. I need a video published on Sunday. What can I demo and talk about this week? Sometimes the topic is based on a question that somebody asked me in a training session. Sometimes it's a new feature. With 365, new features are added every month. And as a content creator in the Excel space, I feel a pressure. And it's a pressure brought on myself, not from anyone else, to create videos that cover the latest and greatest features. An example of that, and I mentioned it in the last show, is when I pulled an all-nighter on a school night in March to get a video out covering some of the new functions that Microsoft had added to Excel. But actually, in the real world, and I said this in a post on LinkedIn recently, there's probably more people looking for answers to everyday Excel questions than looking for videos on new features especially when those new features are only available to 365 subscribers on the beta channel. Sometimes the topic is based on how much time I've got. And it's not just the recording and editing that takes the time. There's the scripting, there's creating the demo data, and there's creating the thumbnail image and the description, as I mentioned before. Quite often, those things actually take more time than the recording and editing put together. In terms of a script, I tend to script the introduction, the ending, and any explanations, because it cuts out the ums and ahs. 
On a live training session, I think viewers tend to accept the ums and ahs more than on a pre-recorded video, even though the finished product might sound more sanitized. Do I stick rigidly to the script? Probably not 100% if I'm honest. I throw in the odd extra word here and there. I think the script is there more as a comfort blanket than anything else. For the actual demos, I usually create just a bulleted running order so that I know, for example, what formula needs to go into what cell. I tend to have the formulas in a larger font and in red, so they're easy to spot in amongst the bullet points. Because the last thing you need is when you type in a formula, you don't want to miss anything out, like a bracket or a comma, because then you've got to stop and try and work out why it's not working and then have to reshoot that part of the video. I use a Google Doc for my scripts. I've actually tried a number of apps, Scrivener, Notion, Craft, probably others. To be honest, anything that works on an iPad would probably work because when I'm recording, I have the iPad in front of me propped up against the iMac. I did try putting the iPad on a stand just to my left, but when I listened back to the audio, the tone and the level of my voice changed ever so slightly as I moved my head from looking at the iPad to looking at the computer. Now, when it comes to the recording, I have a detailed checklist in Notion. As time has gone on and I've recorded more videos, things do become second nature, but things do get forgotten about, just like forgetting to press record in MacBytes After Hours. And we've both done that, haven't we? It's like you say, a pilot may have thousands of flying hours under their belt, but you'd still be happier if the pilot of the aircraft that you were on went through the pre-flight checklist. My checklist includes checking Excel settings, and I added that after an incident back in July. I created a video, five pivot table productivity tricks that you need to know. The link's in the show notes, by the way, if you want to watch it. And one of the tricks was how to stop column widths changing. During the recording, I pressed refresh in Excel, expecting the column widths to change, and nothing happened. Bad words were said as I realised I changed the default setting during a training session earlier in the week and not changed it back. Talking of recording, most of my videos are based on Excel for Windows, although I do do a few on Excel for Mac. Either way, the recording itself is done on my iMac, so if it's the Windows version of Excel, I use Parallels. And if you've not heard of Parallels, it's an application that you put on the Mac for creating and running virtual machines. I've actually got two virtual machines, both Windows-based, one with the latest beta version of Microsoft 365 and the other with the latest current channel release, and that's the version that most people will be running. When I record a video about Excel for Mac, I maximize the Excel window, and that way you can't see the Mac desktop in the background. All the focus is on Excel. When I record a video about Excel for Windows, I take parallels full screen so that the Mac menu bar is hidden, and that way it doesn't look like it's Windows being run on a Mac. To record the screen, I use Camtasia. And although I own a license for both platforms, I record using the Mac version. And I do this for several reasons. One, I'm not actually sure whether the Camtasia license allows me to install it on multiple virtual machines, even if I'm not actually running it on those machines at the same time. And two, if the virtual machine crashes, but the recording's being done on the Mac, it won't bring down Camtasia. 
The audio is recorded using Audio Hijack, and I do that because thanks to your expertise with Audio Hijack settings, I get much better quality audio than if I record directly into Camtasia, and the audio and video get synced up during the editing. So, the checklist has been gone through, and I'm ready to press record. How long does the recording take? Well, how long is a piece of string is a simple answer to that. All I'll say is that it's very rare that One Take Thomas makes an appearance. Once I've hit stop record, it's then time to start the editing. And the editing usually takes longer than the recording, but again, depends on how many mistakes I've made. And it's not just mistakes that need editing out. Sometimes I'll need to re-record a chunk of audio. It could be as simple as I've used the wrong word or mentioned the wrong cell reference. I might have said, I'll click on B5, and actually it was B6. I recently created a video for work. I used the same process as I do for my own YouTube videos. It was a video to promote some productivity days that we're holding. Basically, two days with several 30-minute and one-hour sessions covering a range of topics to help users become more productive. I'd recorded the video and shared it with the team for feedback. And my boss asked me to change, it's free to attend, to there's no charge to attend. A few years ago, our boss's boss's boss, who was our boss's boss at the time, had said we weren't allowed to say that our courses are free. Because although attendees don't have to pay to attend, the company pays a salary. So technically, they're not free. Work that one out. Someone pays. And my boss didn't want that to rear its head again. So I re-recorded just that bit, replaced it's free to attend, and like a good decorator with wallpaper, nobody could tell where the join was. If the screen recording needs changing, that's a different story. I'd have to set up the demo file again and get it to the right state in terms of formatting and formulas and so on. And there's scope for continuity errors. Sometimes it's actually easier just to do some magic editing in Camtasia. I recently recorded a video about VBA and one of the lines of code in the demo changed the cell color. And so the code included the RGB code, which was 144-238-144. There was one part of the video where I was talking about adding comments to the code. And as I typed the comment, I said it out loud rather than just having silence in the video as I typed. 144-238-144 is light green, I said. However, when I watched the recording back, I typed in the comment as 144-238-143. So rather than re-record that bit, I made a copy of the first 144 overlaid it over the top of the 143, and it was a perfect join. I actually do two passes of the editing. The first pass is to cut out anything that shouldn't be there and do the basic fixes to the audio and video, as I've just described. And the second pass is to add the bells and whistles. Things like annotations, highlighting parts of the screen, adding text for further explanation. And if the video includes formulas, I add a text box which displays the formula in a large font, and as I talk through each bit of the formula, or each parameter of the function, that bit's highlighted in yellow in the text box. My checklist now includes add a watermark, the watermark being my name at the bottom right-hand corner. And this was added to the checklist after I once published a video without it. The problem is that YouTube doesn't let you just replace a video, so I had to delete it and re-upload the new version with the watermark. YouTube treats that as a brand new video generating a new URL. Luckily, I hadn't made the video public, so nobody had the link to it. Once the editing is complete, 
I'll watch it through again just to make sure I've not left anything in that shouldn't be there, like any bad words. And then it's time to convert it from a raw Camtasia file into an MP4 that can be uploaded to YouTube. This is done by first exporting to a 4K MOV from inside Camtasia and then converting that to an MP4 using Handbrake. I know Camtasia can export straight to MP4, but I get a smaller file with much better quality using more of your configuration magic in Handbrake. Before I can upload the video to YouTube, there's a few other bits and pieces that need to be done. I like to share the Excel file that I used in the demo so that viewers can follow along with me. So I upload that to a cloud service and then add a link to the file to the video description area in YouTube. That's the block of text below the video. I also need to run through the video to generate the timestamps. If you've ever looked at the description area, you'll notice for my videos that there are hyperlink timestamps so that you can jump to specific parts of the video. Even in a five minute video, a viewer might want to jump to a specific demo or a specific part of the video. And these timestamps have to be manually generated by me going through the video and marking the start time of each demo or each item. Then there's the thumbnail. Let's just say when it comes to creativity, I don't have a creative bone in my body. Complementary colours, layout spacing, I haven't got a clue. Luckily, I have my very own thumbnail design consultant nearby. I have got better though. I've even got to grips with the basics of Affinity Designer. So how it works now is that I open a template that you built for me. I create draft one of the thumbnail and you make it look better. Just a minute. You've missed a step. We create a snapshot inside Affinity Designer of your first pass, then another of my design when we've finished. So we can flick between them for comparison. I was deliberately ignoring that ritual humiliation. Anyway, at that point, we're finally ready to upload the video. I open up YouTube on the iMac. I'm already logged in, so all I have to do is click the Create button and click Upload Video. I drag the MP4 file into the browser and copy and paste things like the description, the timings, the URL of the video, and then add the thumbnail image. And then there's a few other things I have to specify, such as tags and keywords, and whether the content is made for kids or not, which is basically a statement to comply with some US federal laws. And that's it. Within a few minutes, the video is ready and available for viewing. When I say ready and available for viewing, only the low quality version is available at that point. I keep the video private until the super duper 4K version has been processed, which can take a couple of hours. Or in the case of the first video I uploaded as 4K video back in February, a couple of weeks. I'm serious. After 24 hours, the 4K version was still showing as processing. But as the HD version was there, I made the video live. HD is good enough. 4K is the cherry on the icing on the cake. There's one final thing I need to do. I go back into Camtasia and scroll through the video timeline. I'm not looking at the video itself, I'm looking at the tracks in the editor. What I'm looking for is something that makes an interesting screenshot. What for, you're thinking? Well, it's become a thing on social, maybe not with everyone, but certainly with a few of my content creator friends on LinkedIn. 
I think it was Oz Du Soleil who started it. Like me, Oz is a content creator in the Excel world. So now, when I do the socials promoting my video, I post a screenshot of the Camtasia editor on LinkedIn and tag in a few of my contacts. Like I said, it's a thing. So that's a wrap, as they say in the film business. But if you've seen any of my recent videos, you'll know that I've started to make an appearance on camera. So in the next show, I'll share the perils of taking on Talking Head video. Now, we did mention last week that we had something special to share with you this week. And here it is. Drum roll, please. The too long didn't read headline is... Magbytes After Hours is returning for season two on the 18th of November, 9pm UK time. That surprised you all, didn't it? I'm on the smelling salts myself. Yes. Four years ago, on the 16th of November 2018, we finally had an eventless Apple event. Yes, something else Timmy has copied from us since. The rationale back then was that Apple was spoiling our fun in the chat at the MacBytes Live events with their increasingly dire announcements. The demand was that we should have a live stream without them. So we did. That was the first episode of MacBytes After Hours. 16th of November. You all enjoyed it so much that the season ran for 168 episodes of MacBytes After Hours until taking a break in February this year. But as you've heard, season two is kicking off on the 18th of November. What are we covering? Well, that would be telling. But we know you won't want to miss it, hence giving you enough notice. Enough notice to get the Jaffa Cakes in, or your snack of choice. Barricade the doors, lest your friends not understand the imperative of a MacBytes After Hours. And join us live. The countdown starts now, and we'll see you there. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. If you'd like to support what we do, keeping us completely independent, visit macbytes.co.uk and hit the donate button. And we must say a huge thank you to those who did just that after our previous shows. Our sincere thanks to you. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So, until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye, and see you next time. What was that noise? Siri, was that you? Siri, did you hear that? Siri? He might have his noise-canceling headphones on. More likely he's just ignoring me. Well, there is that possibility. Where is he? I'll do the drop-in thing and have a look. OMG, he's out cold in the extension. Siri, Siri, get up man we've got a show to get out. Now is not the time for a nap. Oh, my head. Did she really say that? Did she really say what? No, she couldn't have. It must have been a nightmare. Stop jibbering man. Did you hear it too? Or was it just the voices in my head? Did I hear what? 
that Mac bites after hours is returning for season two? Oh yes, I heard that. Didn't you know? I'll take that as a no then. Alexa, add smelling salts to this week's order. <laughs>